invite you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and we'll begin reading to verse 14 as this morning we come to the final uh, of Jesus' letters for the churches, the final of the seven letters to the churches. Revelation chapter 3, let's give our attention to uh, God's Word. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. God in heaven, we uh, believe, according to your word, that this is the very voice of God, the voice of Christ. And so we, Lord, now give our attention to what Jesus has to say to his church. I pray that, Lord, uh, the words that I speak would be according to your truth revealed here, and the words that we hear would be edifying to our repenting our turning, uh, our sanctifying, and our ultimately, Lord, our, our glory as we receive what you've promised. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine uh, the, the, this morning that uh, you uh, went out maybe Friday night or Saturday night and you uh, came home uh, somewhat late, but uh, you were shocked to find a strange man uh, sitting in your living room uh, eating leftovers from your fridge. Maybe the fridge door is still open. He's sitting in your chair, drinking your beer, uh, watching your television. Uh, that would be a shocking uh, experience. And what if you said to this man, uh, excuse me, may I help you? And the man looked up and uh, thoughtfully said, no, I, I think I'm all set. Thanks. Uh, what's wrong with that picture? Well, everything's wrong with that, with that picture. Uh, here is a man who is so profoundly self-oriented, self-centered, that he has no sense of his outrageous behavior. He's in your house, a house that uh, you bought with your own hard-earned money, uh, enjoying your food and your furniture um, as though it were all his own, as though, as though this was all there for his personal convenience and comfort. 
Well, in our text this morning, we see that it's possible for the church to make this same horrible mistake. It's possible for a church to be so self-centered, so self-oriented, that it ends up on the couch in God's house, happily acting as though the church exists for its own purposes, its own comfort, when it is actually God's house bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, created by His hand for His purposes, for gospel mission, and for His glory. There can be a fundamental blindness rooted in self-orientation, self-centered, self-satisfaction. And so the church in Laodicea is this church. It is happy, it's comfortable, it's self-satisfied, with their feet up on the couch, and no sense of how incredibly offensive they were to God, the God they professed to believe in. Of all the seven churches, uh, the, the letters that we have, it, it is this letter in this church that is uh, it's the most offensive church to Jesus, and, and they receive the strongest rebuke. There are two letters, the two churches that receive nothing but rebuke, uh, the church in Sardis, the church in Laodicea. But at least in the church of Sardis, Jesus said, uh, yet you do have a few there yet who have not soiled their garments. There, there was a remnant still in the church of Sardis. Uh, he says nothing like that here. This church, Laodicea, is just flat out in horrifying sin. And it is the nature of their sin that is the most concerning and convicting. Because it's so easy to fall into. Let's begin by just looking at the city, because you, in order to understand this letter, it's really important that we understand the city itself. Uh, Laodicea was one of three cities in the Lycus Valley, the others being Heropolis and Colossae. Uh, Laodicea was the most prominent, it was, had the most robust economy, it was a, it was a banking center situated at a, a significant crossroad, marketing crossroad. And so um, Jesus notes, uh, you, you say that you are rich, and they were rich. How rich was Laodicea? Well, in 60 AD, so that would be about 30 years before this letter, there was a devastating earthquake that nearly leveled the town. Uh, Rome had its own version of FEMA. And so they uh, sent money to Laodicea to help Laodicea rebuild. Laodicea uh, sent the money back saying, thanks, but no thanks, we can do this ourselves. And they did. Not only did they rebuild the city, they built a new stadium, they built covered walkways, uh, heated, uh, heated walkways, baths. Um, they, they were a very wealthy uh, city. This, is, this city is the epitome of self-sufficiency. The Laodiceans can do it all by themselves. Uh, Laodicea was also known as a medical center of sorts. There was a, um, a salve that they made, Phrygian eye salve, that was uh, purported to be able to cure uh, blindnesses of some sort, and so it attracted physicians at a great healthcare center, maybe their own medical mile. It was a, it was a significant uh, medical center. And so uh, Laodiceans have no sense of need. It's a self-reliant, self-satisfied, capable city, and so was the church. But Jesus has a message for them. Have you ever um, been at work and the boss uh, opens the office door and, uh, and calls out your name and says, uh, could, I, could I have a word uh, with you, please, and beckons you into the office? That's generally not a good sign. 
All right? This is Jesus saying to the church in Laodicea, we, we need to talk. Can I have a word? Uh, Jesus is going to speak to his church. And so he introduces, as he does in all the letters, he reminds them of who he is and, and where this letter comes from. Verse 14, to the church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. These are not the words of the apostle John, not the words of a concerned uh, church member. These are the words of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus reminds them of his, of his true identity and glory. These are the words of the amen. Uh, Joel Beakey points out in his commentary that uh, in the world of that day, contracts were very commonly no more than verbal agreements. Your word was your, was your pledge. And amen would be the verbal seal on that contract. Amen is the same word for true. true when Jesus will say in the Gospels, truly, truly, or verily, verily. He's saying amen, amen. So be it. It, it, is, the, it is the verbal seal of the contract, of, of, of the word that he's going to say. And so Jesus is the amen of God. Jesus is the eternal pledge of God's promises and purposes. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that all of God's promises are yes in Christ. And, and in Christ, we speak our amen back to God. We say, so be it. To God's, so be it. Ours is always in response. Jesus is God's amen. The word of God to this world. What a wonderful amen it is. Where all the promises of God are fulfilled in him. And so it's essential they listen to him. God doesn't have another amen. He doesn't have another word uh, for the world or this church other than Jesus. Uh, he's the faithful and true witness. Sometimes you'll hear uh, said of someone, you know, that, that person just says it like it is, and sometimes it's a compliment and sometimes it's not, but it's generally meant to say uh, they speak their mind and they speak the truth. Well, that's Jesus in the best possible way. He's the faithful and true witness. Every time Jesus speaks, he perfectly addresses the situation, right? When... when um, when, when we speak, what we say might be true, but there's always more that could have been said. There's maybe a nuance that should have been said. It could have been said better. When Jesus speaks, there's nothing more to be said, and it could not possibly have been said better. You'll find that in the Gospels, where Jesus says, right, uh, uh, people will come and they'll test him, and they'll, they'll raise a question or some challenge, and Jesus will answer, and they'll go, yeah. And they walk away. He's just sort of said everything that needs to be said. You never find in the gospel Jesus saying something, and then uh, Peter, it'd be Peter, but Peter nudging him, saying, Lord, I think you should also mention such and such. And Jesus says, thank you, Peter, for reminding me. Let, let me also add, it's not in the gospels. Every time Jesus speaks, he speaks perfectly, completely, everything that needs to be said on the matter. It's It's wonderful. But it also means that we need to pay attention. These are not throwaway words. Every single word matters. Jesus, finally, it speaks of his authority. He's the beginning of God's creation. Uh, Paul, grab in your Bible, just go to Colossians chapter 1. I'd rather you just see this for yourself. The wonderful authority of the one who speaks. Colossians chapter 1, go to verse 15. 
be a great uh, verse to, to memorize or to, uh, to underline in your Bible, to take some time to reflect on. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. It's about, it's about Jesus. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's a letter that was sent to the church in Colossae, about six miles down the road, a letter with which the Laodiceans would be very familiar. They know these words. And so Jesus is reminding them of the authority of Christ, of the authority of the one who speaks. And then he says this, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Avadi Bakum in his sermon pointed out that that means that Jesus not only knows what you did, he knows why you did it. And he knows why you did it better than you do. He perfectly knows every word, thought, deed, attitude, and he knows every motive behind it, every idol that was being served, every, every um, twist that was in it, everything that, was, um, that goes into our life, our deeds, Jesus knows it all. And he's going to tell this church now what he knows, the truth about who they are. It's harsh, but it's true perfectly true. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Uh, it's, it's common for people to apply that as, uh, or to interpret that as though it's a reference to uh, Jesus saying, I wish you were um, in or out, right? I wish you were either hot, passionate for me, or just cold uh, and dispassionate. We sort of think of hot as fervor and coldness as apathy or deadness. And it sounds like Jesus could be saying, just be one or the other. Make up your mind. Well, that's not what he's saying because Jesus nowhere in Scripture prays to his church, says to his church, I wish you were apathetic and dead. Everyone who hears this, and particularly the people in Laodicea, but everyone who knows Laodicea would recognize immediately that this is a reference to their water. It's a reference to their water. See, the one glaring problem in Laodicea is its, its water. It's undrinkable. It's unusable. Now, that was unfortunate because uh, there were two other cities, their, their sister cities in the valley, Heropolis and Colossae, were world-renowned for their water. Colossae was at the foot of uh, some, uh, some large hills and mountains, and they had the best cold, refreshing mountain water you can imagine. If it were uh, today, right, you would have your bottled water, Colossae, right on there, and, and, and that's the water you'd want. It's beautiful water. Heropolis has um, hot mineral springs, just like you go to uh, Yellowstone Park or some other area where there's hot springs. And, and, and people throughout history have used uh, those hot springs as places to relax. It's like a spa, uh, places to heal. The Roman gar uh, army has a, a garrison there, particularly to help soldiers heal. It's known for its healing power. Well, um, 
so what, what, Lycia, what Laodicea did is they shipped it in, right? So they, they, they get their cold mountain water from Colossae and the, and the hot mineral water from Heropolis. Unfortunately, uh, this water, after meandering through miles of Roman aqueduct, by the time it reaches Laodicea, the cold water is no longer cold and the hot water is no longer hot. It's all about the same, lukewarm. And so it's unable to refresh, and it's unable to bring healing. And Jesus says, I wish, I, I wish you, you were one of them. I wish you were useful in, in some way. You're not hot or cold. You, you're not bringing the healing, cool, refreshing water of the gospel to the world around you. You're not bringing the, the healing water of the gospel to the sin-sick world around you. This is a spiritually useless church. There's no benefit to Christ, no benefit to his cause. You see, this is the fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. Remember, Jesus told a parable of the fig tree, Luke chapter 13, and the master goes, and, and this tree just doesn't bear fruit, and the master says, cut it down. The gardener says, man, uh, sir, let me, let me have one more year, and I'll provide fertilizer, manure for it, and let's see, let's see, let's give it one more year. And if it doesn't produce fruit, then you go ahead and cut it down. That's the church of Laodicea. The ironic tragedy of this, of course, is not only are they spiritually useless, they're spiritually clueless. They think everything's okay when it is profoundly not okay. So Jesus, in verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing, clueless, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church has adopted the self-sufficient ethos of the surrounding city. They were wealthy. They, their ministries would be well-funded. Their programs are, are well-provided for. It's easy to see why the, the, the people in Laodicea have, um, felt like they didn't need anything. So if you would ask this church, uh, how can we pray for you? Uh, they would say, well, uh, we, we, don't, we don't really need anything. Thanks. We're, uh, the Lord's been good. We're... We have no needs. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe someone just asked you right up, uh, is there something I can pray for you? Anything you'd like me to pray for? And, and you really couldn't think of anything. I, I mean, everything's fine. Work is fine. Kids are fine. Marriage is fine. Everyone's healthy. I mean, sure, there's a few things you would, you would wish were different, but that seems petty to sort of mention. All in all, uh, things are doing fine. And, and so you say, you know, you know thanks, but um, not really. Just, you know, a lot to be thankful for. I've been there, done that. What's wrong with that picture? Well, there's a, there's a lot wrong with that picture. Think about what it says about how we think about life. You see, it exposes an unspoken and unquestioned conviction that our life and thus our prayers are primarily for our needs and our personal well-being. So if everything is going well in our immediate life, we don't feel a need for prayer. There's really nothing to pray for. We don't, we don't really need anything. 
You see, our perspective is so thoroughly self-referential that if we don't experience a personal want, a personal lack or pain, then we don't sense a need to pray. But what about, what about our neighbor? What about the world that we live in? Is there nothing we could, we could pray for? The world that we live in? What about God? What about his needs? What about his cause, his mission, his church, his world? What about his name, his glory, his kingdom, his will? Do you remember the prayer that Jesus actually taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And your kingdom come. And your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then after that, it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of priority. After we've prayed for the things of God, for the name of God and the kingdom of God, the, the hallowing of God's name, the carrying out of God's purposes, after we've begged the Father to, to take care of those things, then we ask, give us today our daily bread. You see, this, this church in Laodicea, they're, they're, they're just blind. They're blind to the reality of God, the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the cause of God. And, and, and so, therefore, they're blind to their own spiritual desperate need. They think they're fine. Well, of course, yes, they're fine if, if life is about um, keeping you clothed and fed and, and with good medical care. If that's what life's about, yeah, you're, you're fine. Don't, you don't need to pray. But if we are sinners and God is holy and, and, if, and if we care about our families and our children and our neighbors and our world and, and if we care about God's cause and God's church and God's name, oh man, we need help. We need to, we need to pray. One of the greatest dangers of the American church is this incredible self-referential shrinking of our vision to our needs, our desires, our wants. It is the American way. Now, again, I'm not bashing our country. God has given us a gift. Understand. Let me quickly tell you a story. Juan Sanchez, in his commentary, begins with telling a story about a missionary friend that came to speak at his church about getting involved in the mission of God and, and challenging the church to be willing to risk and sacrifice for the cause of the mission. This man spoke with some authority because he was on his way to a pastor, a fledgling church, in the, at the heart of the Islamic State. Could very well lose his life. And he's taken his wife and his children. And one of the uh, members of the church came up to this man afterwards and said, I, I so appreciate what you're doing. I really felt the Lord speaking to me, but um, I've, got, I've got three kids. And you're, you're going to a very dangerous place for children. And you know what this, this, this man said? He said, the United States is the most dangerous place for children in the world. Now, why would he say that? Because our culture is telling our children all the time, you need nothing. Or that life is about you, getting what you need, what you think you need, getting what you want. And if you attain that, if you achieve that, right, you've just, you lack nothing. Get a nice home, get a nice family, get a decent job, get good health care, you're set. Do you see how spiritually deadening that is? Do you see how devastating that is to a church? 
when God has called us to mission? You see, that's exactly what Jesus is saying to this church. Here they are, sitting on the couch with all their self-satisfaction. No, we're fine. We're fine. And it's offensive. It's offensive to Christ, and it's offensive to the watching world. Joel Beakey says, nothing dishonors Christ more in the eyes of the world than a self-satisfied church. Such a congregation preaches the gospel of grace to needy sinners, right, out there, but lives as though it has no spiritual need itself. It tells people that they are guilty sinners out there, but acts as if it has no guilt of its own for Christ's blood to cover. A self-satisfied church is a living contradiction of the gospel of Christ. The, the wealth and material uh, sufficiency of Laodicea has seduced the church into thinking that because their life was fine, everything was fine, and everything was not fine. The church was in devastating straits. They're about to be condemned, and they don't even know it. What would be, what would be one of the marks of this kind of delusion, this spiritual delusion. Well, the, Jesus points out the one defining mark of this, this spiritual deception is that there's no sense of need. You need nothing. When a burn victim feels no pain, uh, they're in the very worst position for the, the burn has gone so deep that the nerves have been deadened. When a church experiences no sense of need, it is in dire, dire straits. It's taken its eyes off the calling, off the mission. It's settled for a comfortable life of self-orientation and self-reliance. How can you tell if a church has, has been gripped by the cause of Christ and the glory of Christ or lost sight of it? And I think the answer is, do they pray? Do they pray? You see, what Jesus finds repugnant about this church is their superficial complacency and their self-sufficient existence. They're useless, they're clueless, they sense no need for the power of God to carry out the mission of God, and therefore Jesus says, I'm about to spew you out. Because you're neither lukewarm, you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Judgment is hanging over the church in Laodicea. But... It is a day of grace, and praise God, this is not Jesus' final word to this church. It's not, it's not Jesus' final word to the church in our day. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire and so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may be see. So that you may see. Jesus, you see, uh, I, I counsel you. There's tenderness and love in these words. He's spoken to them harshly to shock them out of their deadly delusion, but his rebuke is loving and gracious. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, verse 19. So be zealous and repent. Jesus is saying to this church in Laodicea, I love you. I love you. You are my bride. But you're pitiable, you're poor and wretched and naked and blind. So, so hear me, Jesus is saying. You see, he's, he's loving them so well in this rebuke. And buy from me everything that his bride lacks, uh, everything they need, they lack. Everything they need before God, they don't have. But everything they need, Jesus does have. And Jesus is able and willing to give to them. 
So buy gold refined in the fire. In other words, gold that is eternal, gold that, that lasts, riches that are real. Everything you see around you is going to burn. It's going to, it's going to pass away. Buy the real thing. Spend your money on what actually lasts. Buy white clothes to wear so you can cover your, cover your shameful nakedness. Jesus says to them, folks, you're, you're, you, don't, you don't have any clothes before the Lord. Just shameful nakedness. And what's true of a church is true of, of individuals. Without Jesus, we're just naked and wretched before the sight of God. We, we've nothing to cover ourselves with. Nothing to wash away the stain of our filth. Let me just ask you, what are you wearing before God this morning? What are you wearing right now before God? Are you wearing your religion? Are you wearing your theology, your orthodoxy? Assuming that that's going to cover you and cover your sin and make you right with God? Are you, are you wearing maybe your, your hard work and sacrifice that you're making for your family or for a good cause? Or maybe you're just wearing the, the robe of your faith, that because you believe, you sense that your faith is sufficient uh, in, in and of itself to, to cover you. It's, it's not. You understand that? Your faith is not a good work that atones for your sin. The devil believes. Maybe you're, maybe you're covering yourself this morning or trying to with the, the fact that you, you grieve your sin. You you hate it that you keep doing what you don't want to do. And you're hoping that your tears will be sufficient to, to clothe you. They're not. Jesus says, buy from me spiritual clothing. Because it will cover you. It will cover you. No matter how great your sin, no matter how shameful your nakedness, and it's more shameful than we know, Jesus invites us to come and be clothed in his perfect righteousness. His he offers his obedience to cover all your sin and all mine. Come, buy from me. And buy salve to put on your eyes. Um, we can't see without the salve that Jesus gives. We, we can't see the glory of God so that we treasure it. We can't see the truth of our sin so that we despair of it. We can't see the sufficiency of Christ so we delight in it and trust in it. We can't see the, the path of faith and obedience so that we gladly run along it. We need Jesus to help us see. You ever just pray, Lord, open my eyes. And so Jesus counsels this church, come buy from me all the things that you really need. But the question is, how can this church buy anything? They're poor, pitiful, wretched. Well, that is the great news of the gospel. God only sells to those who cannot afford to buy. God only sells to those who have nothing with which to buy. Isaiah 55, come to me. All who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. The gospel is specifically and only for those who have nothing to offer to God but their need. And that's where you are today. That's where I am today. Nothing of merit to offer before God. You never had it. You don't have it today. You never will. A lot of us are hard at work in the life of sanctification, hoping that at some point we can get to the point where we can say, here, God, take this. We never will. We are going to be bankrupt for our entire life. 
in terms of buying the grace in favor of God. So we will always need the gospel. We will always need grace. We will always in ourselves be poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Without Jesus, that will always be the case. But we will always, always find all that we need in Jesus when we come to him. Notice the promises he gives, and we'll wrap it up. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What is Jesus telling telling them? Uh, What's he telling us? When he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, some people take that as, uh, as Jesus wanting to help you, but respecting your free will. And so he'll just politely knock, hoping that you open the door. It's not what it says. Jesus is speaking to his bride. He's speaking to his church. And you know what he's telling them? I'm right here. I'm not far away. I'm not in the neighborhood. I stand at the door and knock. He's right here. He's speaking right now. If anyone hears my voice, Jesus says, because he's talking right now, right here. If anyone hears my voice, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you hear Jesus' voice, if you, if you hear Jesus point out your sin and guilt, if you are able to confess the truth of his words, confess the truth of your need, and trust in the provision that he promises, Jesus says, I will come into him. I will come into that person, and I will eat with him and he with me. You see, friends, in the gospel, Jesus doesn't just offer us salvation. He offers us himself. What you get when you come to Jesus Christ in true repentance and faith is you get Jesus. You get everything that you lost in the fall. You get get communion with God, peace with God. You get to be made righteousness, robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you get a place at the banquet table where you will sit down with God in fellowship and intimacy and peace and eat with him. That's what Jesus is saying. And you'll be robed in glory and honor as you are seated with Jesus Christ on his throne. These are incredible promises. And we have the sign of them this morning at the table of the Lord. That's what's signified right here this morning in this sacrament. This is Jesus' sacrament, and he's telling us in this sacrament everything he's just told us in the Word. That we in and of ourselves are pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Uh, We have nothing to offer to God, but Jesus has offered himself perfectly, completely to us so that we can be robed and clothed and washed, so that we can be rich And Jesus this morning off comes and meets with us at a table, his table, exactly like he's talking about here. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And friends, in the sacrament, that's precisely what we have. A foretaste of what is yet to come, but a reality that's here and now. Communion with God in Jesus Christ. The question is, are you ready to repent and believe? Am I ready to repent and believe? Are we, are we willing to say amen to what Jesus has just said to us? Are we willing to, to hear Jesus' words for our individual lives as self-reliant, self-satisfied people? Are we willing to hear it as a church? As a church that maybe we're just not seeing the cause of Christ and the glory of Christ as we ought to? 
And, and, and we need desperately to have eyes to see so that we, that we pray and, and beg God to use us to glory, glorify his name to, and to spread his gospel. Is it possible that, that here at Harvest Church we, we, we could repent of that? That we're more molded by our West Michigan culture than by the kingdom culture? God knows your heart better than you do. He knows mine as well. Let's, let's pray to him. Ask him to give us eyes to see, to robe us in righteousness, and then let's meet him in faith at his table. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, you've spoken to your church. Perfect, true words. And Father, I confess that we so easily live self-oriented, self-satisfied lives, worried about our needs and our wants, our desires, and not concerned about your glory, not concerned about your name, not concerned about your cause, not concerned about our neighbors all around us who are alone, suffering, dying. And so, Jesus, we confess our own lukewarmness. And we, we ask that you'd have mercy on us as we confess our sin. And Father, you know every heart here this morning. I, I pray that Lord, for, for those who've been trusting in something other than the person and the work of Jesus Christ, to people maybe who've never really saw themselves as you see them, that you would open their eyes to see their, their deep, true need for Jesus Christ. Not as a, an, an aid to help us live the life that we desire, but to see Jesus Christ as a Savior for sinners. And that we would we would sense how lost and helpless we are and come to Christ and be found. Oh, Lord, we are your people all by grace alone, and we trust that your grace is able to build us up and to make us useful. And thank you that you love us, and so you speak to us and you meet with us. Bless us now as we come to your table to commune with you. In Jesus' name, amen.